You're listening to Travel Tales with Virgil. You know, you do these interviews in special places, but myself and, and my ex at the time, we went to uh, Illa Grande. But Illa Grande is like a, an island off the coast of Rio State. Not Rio City, but Rio State. And uh, had an amazing two days there. And you walk through the rainforest to get to this like beach with humongous waves. Like, swimming in these big waves. And it was such a cool spot. But myself and my ex went for a walk down the beach. And you, you eventually, it's a cove. So eventually you get to a part of the beach where the water is just completely calm. And the two of us were in the water there. Beautiful. Like, just such a gorgeous jungle beach. Nobody around. And, I, you know, I just, I just remember thinking like, wow, this is one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Talking about a perfect moment. That, that was like one of those perfect moments of just being like, wow, this is like, this is as good as life gets. You know, just heard the voice there of my very special guest today, the brilliant Irish American comedian Des Bishop, who shares with us today the five fascinating places that have most influenced him. I've run a comedy club in Clamel for well over 15 years, so if you ask me what is the one thing I've yet to experience that I've missed the most since the first lockdown in 2020, then I'd have to tell you it has to be the joyous atmosphere of being in a packed room for a stand-up show. So I'm delighted that my first show since March 2020 will be Des Bishop in Clamel on the 10th of March. It will actually be nearly exactly two years to the day since I was last at a sellout comedy show. And that was when I saw the comedy legends Martin Short and Steve Martin on March 11th, 2020 the last show at the Three Arena in Dublin just before the first lockdown. It's been a long two years and we surely are due some fun times as the world gets back to some form of normality. So now I'm going to go straight into the interview with Des and I know you're going to enjoy this one. Des, you're very welcome to the podcast. Great to see you again. You're just about to start your nationwide tour, Me and Mama. And you're coming to Clamel, I'm delighted to say, on the 10th of March. And I haven't actually been to a gig for two years, so I can't wait to see you. Yeah, I can't wait. I've got, I've got a great memory of the, the room in Clamel. I'm on a good run with that, uh, with that uh, hotel room there. It's always a sellout and it's always electric. And that's, you know, it's one of the things that I haven't done that I miss the most is live comedy. And that room is always electric, you know. Yeah, that room really works. It's funny how you never know what is what is uh, what is the dynamic of that room that works, but it does work. And of course, we have to give the people of Clonmel credit. Jeez, we, we can't make it sound like <laughs> somehow the 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 builders, you know, put some magic sauce in the walls. I mean, it is it is the people of Clonmel. Uh, I will say a little bonus about this me and Mama tour because I'm not actually starting the tour; I'm restarting the tour. So the bonus is that I'm still doing me and Mama, which is a show that. Yeah, it's quite a special show, you know, and a lot has gone into it, probably more than normal in terms of preparation and writing. But, you know, a lot has happened since uh, Mia Mama shut down unexpectedly because of the pandemic. So I'm kind of doing another show in the first half. So essentially, it's like two shows. Excellent. Uh, now, I mean, maybe some people would prefer if I bring an opener. But in this situation where I have all my pandemic material and uh, I got a lot to get off my chest. So it's really it's really two shows. Sometimes I don't know if I should do me and mama in the first half because it's about death and then bring people up, resurrect. No pun intended. The uh, the, 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 the 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 vibes, <laughs> even though me and mama is a great show, but it is quite theatrical. I don't know if I should do that first and then come home with some uh, some some pandemic uh, ramblings. But we'll see. Well, we can't wait to see you in a way. It's going to be special. I mean, people are going to be just, you know, to be able to get out and that thing of being in an electric room. It's just can't wait for that. Yeah, we just have to get them, feel the fear and do it anyway. Book tickets, don't worry. Exactly. You know, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. <laughs> we'll all go down together. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Joel. The problem is, you know, a lot of people don't get these references anymore. You know? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Where are you? You are in? 
I'm in New York. Yeah, yeah. I was in New York a lot of the pandemic, and uh, so I'm I'm in New York now. Going back to Ireland. I was supposed to go back to Ireland. I was supposed to start January sixth. Then I was going to start mid January, and one last delay, and then a week and a half later, Ireland was just like from total, you know, from curfews, from communist era society control to no COVID certs, just like that. Snap the fingers, go, go, go. It's classic Irish, isn't it? It's like, well, you know, it's, listen, I, I think they were right. You know, I, 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 I think, uh, we were waiting for the stats on Omicron. It was good to be cautious, but that once it became clear that caution wasn't necessary, I say, open her up. Is this the longest, you know, that period, so say from March 2020 or whatever, is that the longest period that you're out of Ireland? You're only probably in Ireland a short oh, wow. time. Hey, oh, 100%. No, no, no competition. Uh, actually, yeah. oh, sorry. The only competition was uh, my year in China. Yeah. I wasn't in Ireland. So uh, that was the longest until uh, March 18th, 2020, until... August uh, 2021. So, yeah, a year and whatever that was. Yeah, a year and six months. It's different when you can't go. Do you know what I mean? If you, At least in China, if you wanted to go to Ireland, you could. But this time, like, did you find you were pining for the country? I, I, I finally felt like an emigrant. I finally <laughs> yeah. felt like an Irish emigrant. I, I, was, I was sitting at home writing Irish songs, being like, oh, I can't wait for... An oat, oat milk latte <laughs> yeah. on Francis Street. You know, it's obviously yeah. you're pining for different things these days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the I'm on oat. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Potatoes the usual and Kerrygold, but you can get Kerrygold now. True. True. I get Kerrygold across the street. I have, I have my fiance addicted to the Kerrygold. And you got married. I'm sorry, not married, but you got engaged as well. Was that last March? I know. Took the fact busy. Of pandemic. No, no. Yeah, I got engaged last uh, Valentine's Day. But oh, uh, romantic. Fucking pandemics after messing everything up, you know. <laughs> uh, but the good news is that she came. I brought her to Ireland in December, so she likes it. So that's crucial. But you know, I thought I was going to meet an Irish woman. I have. So did you put, get en- a bit did, more Irish? Did you get engaged before you brought her to Ireland? That was like a high risk one there. Imagine she didn't like Ireland. Uh, well, you know, I had time to call it <laughs> off if she didn't like Ireland, you know? Exactly. So uh, I could use that as an excuse. Yeah, yeah true. So we're, the, the idea of this is we do five locations and yours, there's a possibility, depending on what the first one is here and there, there's a possibility that for the first time ever, I haven't been to any of the locations. So that's always, I like that. Oh, you, you, well, you, the first one, you, yeah. You've been to the location because yeah, it's not true. that far. True. It's an Irish location. Exactly. But, by the way, I picked these based on like your criteria was like a special place, right? Yeah. So I, I, I picked places like these aren't like the best places I've ever been to, but no. I picked places that have some sort of like exactly meaning or relevance. Is that was it? Was that correct? That was that was perfect? Because sometimes people go, yeah, the Canaries. I had a great holiday and that doesn't work for me. <laughs> for as a podcast that's be special so yeah no and, and and also you you picked ones that i was hoping you'd pick so the first one connemara oh yeah well obviously you know that's obvious right because i made a documentary series about that time but you know obviously it was more than just a television show for me i mean i spent a year there is this incredible experience for those perhaps you have listeners that aren't aware of it you know i, I was making a tv show for rte which was uh to to spend a year there and try to learn enough the Guelga to do stand up in, in Guelga. And uh, so, um, you know, I had no idea what it was going to be like. I had no idea if the people were going to accept me. And, uh, well, you know, the people accepted me. The experience was great. The language learning was so much more interesting to me than I expected. And uh, then, then there came the deeper stuff of uh, feeling more connected to Ireland because uh, through the language, um, obviously you feel more connected to the people there through the language, but on a personal level, somebody who's always perceived as an outsider and, uh, you know, questions their connection to the place. Uh, the language did kind of anchor me deeper into Ireland. Uh, and to be honest, living by the coast for a full year through all the four seasons was quite special. And there was a lot of solitude. Uh, Where you know, was this? 
Where were you? So I was in Let's I was in Letzermore, which is like, you know, South Connemara, which is really the 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 heart of the the Gueltoch there. You know, yeah. it's sort of I mean, officially it begins in Barna, but I, I think really, you know, once you hit Spiddal, Spiddal, you can you can start to feel like you're in the an Irish language world. And uh I went to uh I went to the Kalashalurgan and in, Injavon and you know, I, I I lived in Lesser Moor. I played uh, the Gaelic football with Comanpel Nirvana, Lesser Moor, the islands, Cantor Ilan. And, uh, you know, I, re- I really was like in the community. I lived like a, a, an Irish language life. And uh, I mean, there's so much that went on on top of realizing that I'm good at learning languages, which would then inspire other things. But, uh, you know, in terms of uh, my Connemara experience, you know, I, I ran the Connemara half marathon. I or sorry, not the kind of the, the Connemara triathlon. You know, I was swimming in the sea every day. I was pulling lobster pots with the people that I was living with the Fatwillis. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, a unique, special experience that one could never forget. You you mentioned there about um, feeling like an immigrant. So you're kind of unusual because you are, you could say, an American immigrant to Ireland and an Irish immigrant to America. So, you know, when you went there first, or do you feel that in Ireland that you're you're an outsider? You know what I mean? Well, I, you know, I did for a long time. I did for a long time. The Irish, of course, love. I mean, a lot of it's in jest, you know, like joking Mm -hmm. around about you're not Irish and all that stuff. But, you know, there is a there is a resistance to accepting, say, like Irish America as part of Ireland, uh, which I can understand to some degree. But some of it's silly because, you know, the diaspora, you can't ignore the Irish diaspora as part of the Irish experience, because not not all countries, but some countries rely heavily on the diaspora, you know, like Greece and Ireland and. Israel, especially, you know, like some, some are more complicated than others, but, you know, some of them really make up who they are, you know, and Ireland's influence on the politics of other countries, despite being this small Ireland, has been essential. I mean, it was essential in Irish independence. It's been essential in the peace process in Northern Ireland. You know, like the Irish diaspora has been very important for Ireland. And so I, I feel like to a degree, they deserve a little bit more of a place at the table in terms of Irish identity. However, uh, I, I was completely accepted. So I, I know a lot of this stuff is uh, is in, in jest. And I also can completely uh, sympathize with how annoying it is when, you know, somebody who's like a fifth generation Irish person in the United States comes to Ireland sort of feeling like they're Irish, but really having no concept of what being Irish is. Yeah. Uh, but that, of course, is not the our experience because we grew up in a very like genuinely Irish American childhood. My father wasn't American, number one, but all his friends were Irish. Uh, and, you know, we played Gaelic football and we 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 tried to stay connected to Irish culture. So, you know, we didn't come, uh, you know, as like total I didn't come as a total outside being to Ireland. And I certainly came with patriotism for Ireland. You know, I, I came with like a, like a deep love for Ireland in my, in my soul. Uh, some would say a, a problematic love for Ireland, perhaps a, a, almost a passion for Irish independence that belonged in 1917. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, that's, 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 that's the other Irish American issue. <laughs> and was your, was your mother born in America or did she? Yeah. My mother's yeah. my, my, my mother's an Irish American, born in New York, of Irish parents, and I talk a lot about that in me and Mama, you know, because she had that, she had that first generation uh, experience. Whereas my dad was, you know, my dad was actually born in the UK, raised in Middleton County, Cork, and then went back to the UK. So, like, he was he was a genuine immigrant, and he very much he was more the one that couldn't let go of Ireland. You know, he was the one that all his best friends were like Irish guys. And, uh, you know, he was the one that, you know, talked about Gaelic football, whereas my mother's love for Gaelic football was her memories were going to the Bronx and watching her father play Gaelic football. So her her stuff was a little bit more Irish American, but both of them had very difficult childhoods. And in my mother's case, you know, her difficult childhood was very much from the wreckage of Ireland. You know, my grandma's life. I talk about this in me and mom, actually, but. 
you know, the, the beginning of my grandmother's dysfunction uh, very much came from the Irish side and what she fled, which was not poverty, by the way, but she definitely fled the wreckage of uh, the War of Independence, uh, mental illness, alcoholism. And uh, she brought some of that to the States. And unfortunately, she raised my mother, you know, amidst all that stuff. So my mother's like childhood and I think a lot of my mother's like demons Irish people really identify with. So when I when I when I tell the story of me and Mama, it does not seem foreign to people. I, I'd say they very quickly forget that my mother even had a New York accent because her 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 struggles are are, are very Irish, and particularly like Irish mothers and Irish daughters, I, Irish sons too. But they identify with my mother, and then they identify with my relationship with my mother. So I think either it's particularly Irish or it's just particularly human and. We, we yeah. see it through the lens of being Irish. So we think it's an Irish experience. Like I could relate to there what you were saying. You, could, you said she was the organizer and I was kind of going, gosh, that's still, you know, I'm married with four kids. And you're saying like the father kind of could do what he wanted. And the mother was the organizer and the warrior. And I'm going, yeah, we haven't changed that we the world, yeah. you know. Oh, I was, I was, you probably heard me say that on Tommy Tiernan, I guess. Yeah. I can't remember exactly what I said on Tommy Tiernan, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of people can identify with all that stuff. But, you know, in me and Mama, obviously, I have a little more time to to get into it. And uh, yeah. a lot of people can get that. But, you know, it's tough. Like, I, I it's tough on the funny enough. That was the that was the joke it, th- that I forgot in the show, uh, which uh, I don't even know if we were talking about that before we started recording or after. But, you know, I, I, I just the other day, I, I discovered a joke from me and Mama that I completely forgotten over the two years of the pandemic. And the joke very much was that it was tougher for my mother because, you know, in 1975, she had to give everything up because that's what you did. And there was no me too. And there was, there was no sense of motherhood as a job. That's the big difference between now and then was that there was no respect for motherhood as a job, as a career choice. You know, it was, it was like a duty that you had no choice over and you didn't really get any respect for it. And the joke I say in the show is, you know, she didn't have Instagram to like after I was born, go on Instagram and like do a breastfeeding picture on Instagram. And everyone's like, that's right. You're you're a mother and get like a thousand likes. And, you know, no, she was just like, that's your job. Stay at home. Look after the kids. My father will go to work. And, you know, he had he he really got the better end of the deal. You know what? There's a hopeful message from it, too, I would guess, because, you know, you talked about the idea of anxiety and worrying about had she done a good job and you're saying you wish you told her more. I think that's a really good message, you know, the people will really relate to. I think so. That seems to be the feedback. Now, I wasn't delighted after the interview it was actually recorded in December. I don't know if I'm giving away RT secrets, but that's the reason why I was back in December, actually. And uh, after the interview, I, I, I would have preferred it to I, I don't mind a bit of intensity in the interview, but I would have preferred maybe a release from the intensity. So for me, I, I was very unsure uh, how that would be perceived but you know the good news is that you know when you're that honest yeah. uh you know and and like those were realizations i had they weren't realizations that came from talking to tommy so i was very comfortable talking about that you know because i that wasn't how i felt when i was doing me and mama in 2020 you know uh you're just heading to a year since my mother died i never made it to a year since my mother died the pandemic happened yeah. so the show actually stopped uh two weeks before uh, my mother's like one year anniversary of her death. So obviously when you have more time, you know, you, you, you get to these realizations of, yeah, you know, it's a pity that I didn't make it clearer. Although I have to say, you know, I don't know if it really would have uh, made that much of a difference for her. I feel like her anxiety was so chronic that uh, she probably would have, would have hung her worries on something else. But, you know, it's just unfortunate for her that she got sick when she did, because she had been making a lot of progress and obviously, once you get into survival mode, you're not worried about what the what you were working on with the grief counselor, you know? You know, like when you're on stage, say, for that show and your, your father's show, my dad was nearly James Bond. Like, was there ever a time when you're on stage and you, you know, it kind of hit you? Like, was there? Nah, there I mean, there, there are a couple of times. The, the biggest one with my dad's show was, you know, because my dad's show wasn't about my dad being dead. My dad's show was no. actually about my dad being alive. True. And he was with me for most for most of it. True. And uh, so the, the one of the tougher but also more momentous nights was the first night back on stage after he died, because, you know, we had made a documentary and 
that's a Tommy was joking the show. It's like somebody dies, you make a show. But like we, I didn't just do a show. We, we made a fucking documentary, and I wrote a book about my dad. So I, I did a lot with my dad dying. But anyway, uh, so it was very public when he died because he died uh, the Tuesday after the documentary had been on the Thursday before. Wow. So it was kind of like uh, fortuitous timing in terms of his death being momentous, which my father would have loved. And uh, so I had to delay shows for like a week or a week and a half. So it was actually in Galway in the town hall theater was the first show back. And that was uh, emotional, mainly just walking out because the crowd gave it a little extra. They knew what was up. And I think they were grateful that I had been there because actually the previous Galway show the night before I can't, I had to cancel. That was tough. And uh, a couple of times with my, with my mom's show, actually, I just did one a few weeks ago here in New York and my brother was at it. It's the first time he'd seen it. And that felt a little different, you know, because like a family member was there. So, you know, but in general, no, but I don't mind when it does hit you a little bit because it feels pretty authentic. Yeah. It's not like I'm concerned about getting teared up in a show about my yeah. dead mother, you know. There was, just, there was a famous one with Daniel Day-Lewis. I think it was in, he was doing Hamlet and he saw the ghost and he, one night he just walked off the stage, you know, because he, he, oh, he saw his dad. Yeah, exactly. And he just walked off, didn't come back. Well, if I could summon just an ounce of the intensity of Daniel Day-Lewis, I'd be happy <laughs> yeah. with my show. Exactly. Mightn't work for comedy if you just walk off. So I, I, I express grief in the show in actually quite a physical way. It's a bit of a performance piece. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of protected by the, by the spectacle that is my, my grief section of the show. So I, I, it doesn't require me to just summon any deep method acting abilities mm-hmm. to, to touch on my grief. So your next one now, we'll move on to, uh, it's West Cork, the Barra Peninsula. And the place is... It, well, it's is, Dogshin Barra particularly, though. Yeah. D- so I, did, I, I, did, I wanted you to pronounce it, you see, not me. All so, right. Sorry, 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 sorry. What is it? <laughs> what is it? How do you so pronounce the, it? Well, they, they say Dogshin Barra, I guess, okay. like, like kind of yeah. like a D and a Z together, Z together, Dogshin yeah. Barra, I think. Yeah. Uh, don't quote me on that. I think it's Tibetan because uh, it's a Buddhist... Uh, retreat center slash monastery in West Cork. Now I am not a Buddhist and uh, you know, there's, uh, there's some, there's some criticism out there uh, of the, of the powers that be that are involved in the Dogshin Barra in terms of the, from the Tibetan side. Uh, I, I, I don't ignore that or dismiss it, but I've never gone there uh, to be part of the, institutional part of the Dogshin Barra. And I, I shouldn't begin by suggesting anything negative about it because I think it's one of the most amazing places. The only reason I sort of, I say that is because I told a friend recently and he's like, you know, was like pointing that out, you know, yeah. but that it's like the equivalent of like uh, stopping yourself from uh, uh, feeling the wonder of a, of a beautiful uh, cathedral in Florence exactly. and, and just thinking about everything problematic about the Catholic church. Exactly. Uh, the two can exist simultaneously. So anyway, there's nothing uh, uh, comparable to that in terms of the Jagshin Bear. But anyway, uh, the Jagshin Bear is an amazing Buddhist retreat center on the uh, the the on a kind of cliffside in between Castamber and Alahis. And if you've ever been down that far, it, the place is pretty rugged and it feels pretty remote anyway. Exactly. The landscape is is uh, pretty spectacular. And when, right around the time that you get to the turnoff from the main road to go to the Junction Barra, you're in a bit of a moonscape, you know, these kind of like Connemara has them too, these kind of moonscape landscapes. And uh, you, you, you drive up to what feels like, you know, an extremely remote place. But then you see these beautiful whitewashed buildings and you think like, oh, this is cute. And then you walk to the edge of the, the road and you are looking out at the Atlantic in the most beautiful setting, like as majestic as the cliffs of Moher, honestly, like exceptional place, especially because it really hits you by surprise. And they have a meditation room uh, that looks out over the Atlantic. And uh, I've done a lot of meditation workshops there. And why, why it's so special to me is because when I stopped drinking in 1995, you know, I went back to UCC and I was involved with, you know, guys in recovery from uh, from Cork. And they were the ones that introduced me to Junction Barra because one of them actually had been from Castleton Bear. And, uh, you know, we used to go there a lot. I used to stay in the hostel. The hostel was cheap. And 
you know, we, I, I, we did one of the retreats and I did a lot of the meditation workshops and it, I just learned a lot of skills about meditating and actually about the simplicity of meditating, you know, just essentially just being turning off your mind. There's nothing to it. Cause you know, I, I guess a lot of people think of meditation, like as if there's some magic to it, but really there's nothing to it, literally nothing. And uh, so I, 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 that's where I experienced that for the first time down there. And uh, I went down there on my own sometimes and stayed in the hostel. And then over the years I go to visit and, you know, the Buddhists are very big on death and I brought my mother there after my father died. You know, it's just a great place to just um, find uh, peace, serenity, acceptance. And uh, I took Hannah there, uh, just 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 gone in September wow. or in December. And uh, we got very lucky with the weather. Like the sky opened up, beautiful sun. And there was a cat. Hannah's a cat person. And uh, there's a cat that lives there now that loves to just get up on your shoulder. And like Hannah spent most of the day walking around, looking at this beautiful scenery and like meditating outside uh, with a cat on her shoulder. It was, it was amazing. So she now loves the Jogshan Bear. I mean, it's a little fancier now than my early days. Like they have a great cafe. That's like a genuinely nice cafe. Um, and you're sitting there drinking coffee, looking out over the, you know, the sea. Uh, in, in my time of going there, they also, they built a hospice, you know, they have like a center for caring for the dying and now they're building an actual Buddhist temple that's in construction. Yeah. Cause I think I read about it and it, it, the owner's wife died. I think that's why he did the hospice, wasn't it? Um, I could be yeah. Wrong. Yeah. I mean, mm. I, you know, I don't know. It's that's the whole thing. It's like, I'm not that I'm not involved with the institution of the place at all. I'm just like a praiser and, and I, I can't. Anyone can go there. Anybody can go. You could go there right now. You could finish this podcast, jump in your car and drive to West Cork and have a coffee, you know, before five o'clock. Uh, and, you know, it, it's like uh, it's it's very open. It's very welcome to visit. And by the way, can I also say that my mother's mother, my grandmother is from Glengarriff. She's from close to there. So literally she's from, you know, the other side of the of the mountains from there. And uh, it's uh, so that that's part of my connection to it is I always feel a special connection to to West Cork because, you know, my grand, despite speaking ill of my grandmother earlier, I did not see that side of my grandmother. To me, my grandmother was the most loving individual I'd ever met in my life. And uh, like most people have like a very special relationship with their grandmothers. I had a very special relationship with my grandmother. We were very close. And uh, so uh, for me, being down there in general, uh, is it, and it, the fact that that place can exist in the place uh, where my grandmother's from mm. is adds to uh, the specialness of it. I was actually looking it up before I come on the call, and you know when I typed in Zangen, a guy came up a YouTube clip that I just went into about meditate Zangen meditation, certain type of meditation. Oh right. And it was the first time ever that it made sense to me because the guy was going. Oh, really? see, there you go. Yeah, it was funny because <laughs> you know what he was saying was he was like going, you know, yeah, you, you'll be thinking about a million things, but don't worry about that. It, like, just go away. And then the next time you come back, there'll be a little bit less and a little bit less. And just the fact that you keep coming back. And I went, yeah, OK, because anytime I think about it, I go, I'm, I'm thinking of stuff. You can't. How can I meditate? But hmm, made sense. Yeah, and then also and then also you you criticize yourself for not being able to not think. Exactly. You know? and, 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 and that that is the great thing about what they're saying It's all the time. They're basically letting you know that the thinking will happen. But it but they do. They're being in the concept of a practice. And essentially, you know, you have to train like you have to do it regularly to get that uh, emotional stability and uh, mental calmness. It doesn't just happen. You don't just go from, you know, three years of you know, being out of control with your thinking and uh, you're emotionally unstable, then sit down, breathe in and out a couple of times, try not to think. And then suddenly like you have an empty head. That's not going to happen. One of the things that's in the, you know, one of the books that they read is a story that's also in Kung Fu Panda. So I assume it's, it's, it's generally part of Eastern philosophy, but the master tells Kung Fu Panda, that the mind is like a glass of muddy water. If you keep stirring it, it will remain cloudy. But if you let it sit, the mud will sink to the bottom and the water will become clear. And they always use that as the metaphor for the mind. That the trick to meditation is you, all you're doing is stopping stirring it. So, of course, at the beginning, all these thoughts, the sediment is going to be spinning around. But if you let it settle and letting it settle is not just one meditation session. You, you know, you begin to uh, bring in meditation as part of your life and the sediment does settle but i have to say i was much 
I was much more disciplined at the practice of meditation in the earlier days of, of my recovery. When I first stopped drinking and I was essentially, I was putting out the fires of my emotional instability, but life happens, you get busy. And, you know, I, I, I haven't been as good, although in more recent times I have uh, gotten back into it. And was that part of your idea of going to China then? That I, that, you know, mysticism and Eastern? No, 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 that was, that was a combination of always wanting to learn Chinese uh, my connection with uh, Leo and the guys from Abacababra uh, and having, having gone there to visit them when they were on a vacation in 2004 and really being blown away by China and how different it was, you know, and uh, which, which ties in a little bit to another location I gave, but we, I won't jump ahead. But uh, so China then was like, and then when, when in the name of the father, was did well and it re- i realized i'm pretty good at learning languages i then pitched this concept of living in china to learn chinese to do stand-up in chinese because then it was 2008 the beijing olympics was coming up coincidentally enough just about to happen again very controversial uh but the the world was very much uh opening up to the fact that china was on the rise by 2008 and there was a lot of china interest so i felt that this this uh, language hook would be a great way to, you know, uh, make a, make a series, you know, like to, to learn about China and that there would be an interest. So uh, all those things together uh, brought up the, the China obsession, but, you know, also the neighbor that I grew up with in Queens, Flushing had become very Chinese in my lifetime. So I had numerous occasions where I got to know my neighbors, but couldn't communicate great. So I had really started to develop a desire to learn Chinese same way. I had a desire to learn Irish. I was exposed to the Irish language, but I didn't learn it and I didn't have to learn it. So I never did, but I wanted. And so the, those two things were also similar. So again, like Connemara, having had the chance to live in China for a year uh, and, and connected to that place, that was a special experience for different reasons than, than Connemara, but, uh, but also just as uh, like rewarding, you know, especially because if you can feel like a slight connection to Chinese culture and the country of China, I mean, you're connecting yourself to a lot of people, you know, and obviously I'm not looking for them to consider me Chinese, not the same as my Irish American story, but it is fun to be able to connect with Chinese people because there's so many and it's, it's, it's a pretty rich culture and history, you know, which I'm still like learning from time to time. I'll, I'll go back into a China hole and I'll find myself looking up, the history of Genghis Khan and how he affected China and then Europe. And then you just realize that like, you know, it is not actually that many degrees of separation between all world cultures. <laughs> exactly. And where were you? Beijing, was it? Was that where you were? Yeah. Beijing. Yeah. Yeah. That was where I based myself. I wanted to be in a big city, but also a city that still felt quite Chinese Shanghai. I mean, Shanghai, I, I actually had more connections in Shanghai in terms of like uh, television and film and stuff. Uh, Shanghai potentially might have been easier for us. There was also a comedy scene already existing there and they did help me, but I felt like Beijing would be better for language learning and be more like, would feel more authentic, uh, feel more lost in, in China, which was correct. And uh, so that, that worked, you know, that worked out, but I traveled around a lot. I didn't just base myself in, in, in Beijing. I traveled through a lot of China, but I, I, I didn't leave China except for uh, two weeks in August of uh 2013 i did go back and visit my uh my mom uh and then other than that uh i I was in china i I didn't come back to ireland for the entire year and i didn't travel to any other country during that first year and what's your impression then it's too vast (laughs) it's a whole other podcast but what's the first thing that comes Uh, to your head like if you go someone's people a lot of feckin people (laughs) you seem to get on very well with them going on the show the tv show yeah, I, I got, I got, they were great. I mean, Chinese, like, I, I, I love Chinese people now, they have a great sense of humor, but obviously it's easier to connect with them once you have the language. So, yeah, I mean, and the other thing is China is just like very different, you know, and that's what's great. You really feel like you're in a different place. Uh, so, you know, to be able to have connected with all that uh, was great. It's very hard to say, like, there's just so much. It's like so vast, you know, uh, the food was amazing. The cultures around the food was amazing. The importance of it. 
the way they they socialize very different you know not into like going out to bars you know so you like eating culture is like a big culture so it's great to connect with that uh great to get into their odd customs and you know things that are okay to do things that are not okay to do uh you know the concept of face you know that this sense of showing respect and they have a they they're a bit still more into the pecking order of age and uh you know respecting elders and stuff so there was just so much to to absorb uh and it was great and if someone was going to china for holiday and they asked you like would you say go to beijing or is there is there one spot that you recommend outside i mean there's so many you know if you're looking for the quintessential urban chinese experience then you know i think it's 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 you know it's probably worth visiting like beijing shanghai and then you know some southern city or like going to like xiamen the island in fujian if you're looking for like a you know cities but then if you're looking for like a you know a more like southeast asian kind of like backpacking experience like i think yunnan yunnan province is great you fly to kunming and you can go and like see these like uh, minority people you know Shaoshu Mingzu they call them but they're they're not Han Han is the majority like when you think of Chinese person you're really thinking of a Han Han Chinese person but there are other ethnic groups there and uh, some are more different than others like like obviously the Xinjiang people they're not even really Chinese I mean that would get me imprisoned but uh, Xinjiang people are they're Turkish they're Turkish they have more in common with like Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan uh, but they're you know so they're, they're, and they're Muslim so uh, they're, they're the most different, I would say, in terms of like the minority people and obviously Tibetan people, because they don't, you know, that you, uh, I think most people are aware of that. But uh, but in Kunming, there's also like a lot of uh, uh, minority people and they still have a lot of their cultures and stuff. So all that stuff is really fun. The weather's a bit more like Southeast Asian weather. Um, and there are other spots like that that, you know, I I went to one time and, you know, there are other spots where you can get into that more rural uh, kind of backpacking experience, uh, you know, which is also fun, you know, but Harbin, actually Harbin, if there was another great Chinese city to visit Northeastern China, Harbin, where a lot of the Irish, a lot of the Irish, the Chinese people that emigrated to Ireland, they all come from the Northeast, from Heilongjiang and Liaoning province, Jilin province. But uh, Harbin is in Heilongjiang. It's a very cold city, but it's uh, that's a cool city. Very influenced by Russian colonialism, and uh, it's a great mixture of a uh, you know a sense of uh, Russian architecture with Chinese culture, and it's 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 a pretty fascinating city. You were kind of thinking of staying on, weren't you, after the show? Like you seemed to. No, really I stayed on. What oh, did you? I stayed on for an extra year. Wow. Yeah. You know, I was very involved in Chinese comedy and I was doing gigs in Chinese. So it wasn't going to be easy to do that outside of China. So <laughs> I, uh, I stayed another year, but that, that second year though, I didn't, I still, I did the Melbourne festival. I did the Edinburgh festival. I did shows in Ireland. You know, I was back touring in Ireland. I just happened to be living in Beijing, you know? So your next one is uh, another spot. I haven't been to It's definitely on my bucket list is Rio. Yeah. Rio and Brazil. So that, the, and, and, that trip, the reason why I put that trip down was because really that was the first time I was in a place where I felt like I was really somewhere else. You know, I had traveled on my own to, at that stage of my life, I traveled on my own to uh, Italy and I'd been to places in Europe and stuff and that felt cool, but you know, it still felt European, like not entirely unfamiliar. Uh, whereas when I was in Rio, I felt like I was really in another place, in other world. Uh, but the, the reason why I went to Rio was because uh, it was after I completed radiation from, you know, my treatment after having testicular cancer. So it was a celebration of that, which was also uh, like a, a special thing. And I was traveling with my ex of the time and uh, we were good uh, travelers together. I have to say uh, we didn't make it as a relationship, but we did. We, we were great on, on vacation. We were, we killed it. And, uh, and we, we really explored, you know, like we only had two and a half weeks, so I wasn't able to really like get lost in Brazil, but within that two and a half weeks, whenever I meet Brazilians and I tell them what I did in that two and a half weeks, they're quite surprised we covered a lot of ground. Um, but yeah, that was, the, that was really when I got like the travel bug of like going to, you know, unique places and, uh, the people were so friendly and, you know, felt like a different culture, different food, different you know, there, there was just so much about it. And then we had this like special night where I guess we kind of, we got a little bit off track in terms of, we went to Ministries, we went to, and we, so we went to Belo Horizonte, which was like, a, that's like the main city in the Ministries and it, it, the, the region. 
and we were on our way to uh, this beautiful town for Easter, Oro Preto, which is just like gorgeous UNESCO protected town. But we had this one night in Belo Horizonte, which is like a, a, a it's it's like a nothing city, you know. It's like getting stuck, and you know, I don't want to give an Irish comparison, <laughs> but in a way, it'd be like. If you were in the UK traveling, you got stuck in Birmingham, you know, you'd be like, okay. what are we doing in Birmingham? You know, and there's like a lot of buildings from the 60s. And uh, so we just end up like, there's like people drinking outside of like a shop, you know, like it wasn't even like a fancy bar. And we like sat down to have a drink. And uh, this like kid, I guess 21, 22 year old kid was like dying to practice his English. And he was like, you know, like saying things like Bill Clinton, you know, <laughs> like, like he's just like doing like, and so next thing we like, we we just start hanging out with these Brazilians. We couldn't really communicate. And then they took us to this like run down, like we, we could have got killed, but went to this like run down, like dancing club. And we're just like hanging out with these Brazilians. And uh, you know, I'm night I was naive then, so like it just felt so cool and so, you know, like wow, we're connecting with people in another world. And uh you know, it just it felt exciting and exotic. And that was when I got, I got the, the beginning of a bug of like, it'd be great to just get to know more cultures. And then, you know, I always, you know, you do these interviews, you know, special places, but myself and, and my ex at the time, we went to uh, Ila Grange, which, you know, sadly, like like five or six years later, an Irish girl was murdered there. It was very sad, a total just like, very sad story that sometimes if I mention it, people bring that up about Ilagrange, but Ilagrange is like a, an Island off the coast of Rio state, not Rio city, but Rio state. And, uh, we had an amazing two days there. And you walk through the rainforest to get to this like beach with humongous waves, like swimming in these big waves. And it was such a cool spot, but myself and my ex went for a walk down the beach and you, you eventually it's a cove. So eventually you get to a part of the beach where the water is just completely calm. And the two of us were in the water there. Beautiful. Like just such a gorgeous jungle beach, nobody around. And I, you know, I just, I just remember thinking like, wow, this is one of the most amazing experiences of my life. You watch Spalding Gray, Spalding Gray say he's dead now, but you know, he, he talks about the perfect moment. I think it was in swimming to Cambodia. You know, he used to do these one man shows with talking about a perfect moment that that was like one of those perfect moments of just being like wow this is like this is as good as life gets you know so i i, I that was that was always like a special spot the that beach which i can't name in Ilagranja, which you can't get to unless you have a boat or you walk through the rainforest and uh so that was like one of those special moments i feel like those are getting harder and harder to achieve though because the internet has made everything more accessible which is a positive yeah. but nothing feels as remote as it once did you know? you know, and you can look it up now. And before, you know, see photos. yeah, because we were walking around our lonely planet like a feckin' Bible. And, yeah. you know, I don't know. There was just, it, it did seem more exciting. And I don't know, is it because I've gotten older or because everything's more accessible, but nothing's as exciting or as remote as it used to feel, you know? But you kind of describe the two moments actually perfectly that um, are always special. One is when you go to a spot like that, like I always say, Clamel is a bit like that. When I see tours of Clamel, I go, how did you end up here? But if you do end up in Clamel, <laughs> you know, when you go to the bar, you're guaranteed people will talk to you because they'll be curious. Do you know what I mean? Somebody yeah, 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 that's yeah, off yeah. the beaten track. And then that other one, like when I was traveling, it's always those, it's like a sunset somewhere and it's when you were on your own and they're the most magical moments. So you can still do those no matter where. Because another thing I always say is like, you know, even though you want to go off the beaten track, it's great going to touristy places because there's stuff happening on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You know what I mean? That there's and they have yeah, like totally. Well, you know, yeah, because I always I always tell people not to go to Temple Bar, but the reality is that like you know on a Monday night if you're visiting, you should go to Temple Bar. And the thing is that touristy areas are interesting to tourists. That's why they're that's exactly. why they're there, you know. And it it feels inauthentic, but actually, you know. It, it takes time to to even be able to appreciate authentic stuff sometimes you know, like so you're, you if you completely avoid touristy areas you're, you're probably avoiding things because they become touristy for a reason it's not just commercialism you know a lot of times there's like certain aspects of that area that attract tourists because they are quite unique we take for granted you walk around temple bar you're like wow what a shithole <laughs> but actually it's a pretty cool looking area. If you've never been to Dublin before and suddenly you walk into this area and you feel like you've gone a little bit back in time and, you know, so it's understandable that people would want to go there. And, 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 you know, 
obviously, you know, you go to China, you go to Tianmen or you go to these like hutongs. And after a while you live in Beijing, you're like, oh, you got to avoid those places. It's disgusting. But if you've never experienced it, you know, it is pretty cool to see it for the first time. And you were like, you would have traveled an awful lot, you know, up to the last two years. Did you miss that? Like you, you'd be going to Australia to, to, you know, to Edinburgh. You had a route nearly every year. Yeah. Yeah. That? No, I really, I really did miss that a lot. And I, especially in Australia, I would always take off and go to other spots. I was always like the other comics would make fun of me. Cause I kind of like the, I was always trying to get away from Melbourne and go to different spots and, you know, uh, like as if like the comedy was just like an excuse to be there. But uh, so, yeah, I did miss that. I mean, I've done a, I've done a fair whack of traveling now. Uh, it's been not as restricted here. So I've been to Mexico twice during the pandemic. And that was really cool. Uh, even though I haven't gone like Mexico, Mexico. Um, I nearly went to Mexico City last week. I kind of fucked up. I, I delayed my Irish tour and then I forgot to put in my avails for the comedy cellar. And uh, I so I ended up having a week off that I didn't want. But I ended up going to Aruba because I, I I know a guy down there in Aruba. So that was very, that's very like a holiday place. But I nearly went to Mexico City, which yeah, honestly, I kind of regretted not going. But uh, but I did have a nice trip to Aruba. So I have done a bit of a bit of traveling. But um, when things the good news, is Hannah's a little younger than me. And the real positive about that is there's still so much stuff that she hasn't done and wants to do. So I'm happy to I'm happy to go along for the ride with that sort of, you know, her wide eyedness. Plus, you know, she was a tennis player, like at a very high level in her youth up until she finished college. And. So she kind of missed a lot of, she missed a lot of, uh, you know, the years of your early twenties where you would, uh, you know, be free. She was like trapped with the sport. So she still has a lot. And then, you know, she immediately got into career and started like worrying about a career. So she has a lot of just like living to do. So I'm, I'm happy to help her liberate her from, uh, her ambition and just go and travel. (laughs) <laughs> keep you young and she's a high profile comedian so how does that compare to ireland like is it a different level like media profile and things like that in america or do you notice that well, she's a bit mo- you know she's got a modern media profile in that some of her famous from reality tv show but then she's also done well with the online stuff so your next one during the lockdown i actually used to i follow you obviously on uh, instagram and i used to get very jealous because you used to do a lot of stories i presume this is where that beach is used to be on the beach. beach yeah that's i mean that's literally like you know an, an hour and 50 minutes from where i'm sitting right now it's not exotic but you know you talk about special places and that was uh the first summer of, of 1990 actually it was a, i was 14 years old and our, our my parents bought this rundown shack in an area that was threatened very badly by beach erosion so they're they're dead now so i can say it they bought this little shack for eighty five thousand dollars. um which, you know, at that time, especially should point out was only about 45,000 Irish pounds. You know, it was nearly two to one dollar to the Irish pound back in those days. So 45 Irish pounds, they bought this little beach shack uh, at, at, at sort of the, the western edge of the Hamptons. Some people don't even consider West Hampton to be the Hamptons, but we're like we're literally at the very western edge of, of uh, West Hampton Beach. Um, literally I walked the dog into the next town, the town of Brookhaven, but it's, it's separated from the mainland by, uh, well, it's separated the mainland cause it is a barrier Island, but it's also separated to, to the other side, the town of Brookhaven by an inlet. So the town of Brookhaven starts, but then it's just a little stranded part of the town of Brookhaven because there was an inlet created by a hurricane in 1930s. So anyway, needless to say the the story of my area is all a story of beach erosion. But beach erosion allowed us financially to get a foot in the door of the uh, the Hamptons, and uh, over the years they reclaimed the beach, and uh, the area has actually developed into quite a fancy little spot. Mm-hmm. But we still live in the in the structure of the original bungalow. We went up on stilts and we put on an extension, but I still live in the original house that we bought. And uh, so the reason why I left so abruptly from the pandemic in Ireland March 18th was because. The world was shutting down, and I, I, I had no desire to leave Ireland on March 18th, but I was worried about being stuck in Ireland for the summer. <laughs> and because we have the house, uh, and it's my house now, myself and my brother Aiden's house, uh, we, I just wanted to spend the summer there. You know, I've, I've started to spend more time there in the summer. And, uh, but that's not why it's special. That's just why I, 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 I chose to do the pandemic there. But it's special because from the age of 14, 
which was, by the way, the summer that I went to Ireland. So right before I went to Ireland, I had this beautiful first summer in, um, in West Hampton, which was great because I had a very difficult year, flunked out of school. And, you know, I, I connected with all these old, these old people were in their 30s. They were like all married couples with no kids at that time. And they kind of embraced me, 14-year-old, little, little wise-ass kid. They taught me how to play volleyball. And they sort of took me, you know, they accepted me as part of the beach crew. Uh, and, you know, people can identify, you know, you get this like multi-generational beach crew uh, summer vibe if you go to like Ackle or, you know, Kerry or whatever. So, you know, we became part of this like very small, close-knit summer community. And uh, they, those people became very important to me over the years, playing volleyball and, you know, just like, you know, life you know, talking to me, adults, talking to a young person about life. And it was like, they're good. They became good influences on my life. And those summers became so special. And like all those people are coming to my wedding. Like they're all still there. The majority of them are all still there. I've spent the majority of the pandemic with them. And, uh, you know, just the ocean, obviously, you know, you know, a lot of my places have to do with the ocean. The ocean is very important to me. I'm like an ocean guy. So to be able to go to the ocean all the time and to be there and, you know, it was a special place for my dad, uh, you know, sitting there on the beach. So there's just a lot about that place that's uh, very important to me. So I'm, I'm very lucky to have that that little uh, retreat. It was essential during the pandemic. Uh, and uh, so lucky us. I know. And you know the way like you picked there, I always think of you like as a New Yorker. So you didn't pick Queens. Like, do you consider yourself a New Yorker? Yeah, yeah, I'm a New Yorker, but like that's where I'm from. You talk about places. Uh, yeah, True. I didn't. I would never pick Queen. Queens is just where I grew up, and it was fine, you know. But I would never, I would, I would never pick Queens. Nah, but but I do consider myself a New Yorker. But like, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't. The only way you consider yourself a New Yorker, it's something I was wondering because I, I watched clips of you on, um, say, the comedy comedy club or whatever what do they call the comedy store and do they consider you people who listen to you do they think you're irish or do they consider you a new yorker well it's, it's a very interesting thing because in general before the pandemic i would always establish my unique identity and people would definitely see me as a hybrid and i i think the average american comic and even audience member probably perceived me as more irish than american because despite my New York accent, which they can definitely hear the New York in my accent, which is a dying accent. People are trying to erase all, you know, a- any anything remotely local. They're trying to erase from their accents. Uh, There's a whole other topic. But uh, so, but I have a real New York accent. It's kind of like a dying accent. You know, and my, you know, I always try to explain to Irish people that my New York accent is the equivalent of like a Dublin accent. You know, like it's a working, this is a working class accent to Americans, right? Uh, which Irish people can't identify with, right? Like they can't, they don't hear working class in my accent, but Americans hear working class in my accent, which actually took me time to get my head around because I've never spent so much time professionally in America that I started to realize that like people are making sweeping assumptions about me based on my accent, you know? Because my Irish experience has been very different to my New York experience. Like yeah. just, I, I definitely lived like a, like a more like middle-class slash like intelligentsia life in Ireland. So it, it, it's funny. I, I could tell people make sweeping assumptions about me based on my accent. So anyway, uh, but on stage, despite my accent, I really feel like people identified me more as like a Irish European sentiments. Uh, and even in my other comedy styles, they would sort of feel a difference, which, which, which was good. Yeah. But weirdly enough in the pandemic, I have, when I, we, we started actually in April, 2021 so we got back on stage a lot earlier here and i had so much to talk about covid i just gotta say i just talk about covid my experience and i i never really established that i had any connection to ireland and i have to say it was quite liberating in that i found that there were times where it was a benefit for for me for them for, for them to just think of me as like a a new york guy an american guy uh which i'd never thought of before um, and, you know, and also I think for me also, it was liberating in that, like, I felt like I had more authority to talk about these American things. Whereas before I felt like a bit of an imposter if I talked about these things. So it was nice to actually just like indulge in that. Uh, now I've gone back to establish, you know, I've gone back to sort of more hybrid identity, but there was, I have to say, I enjoyed the freedom of just being like some New York guy on stage. I loved during the Trump time, you were very vocal and it was always interesting getting your angle in America. And now just, I'm really confused because I'm I always loved American politics and I see Biden doing stuff 
But all I keep hearing in Ireland and in America is people saying he's doing nothing and he's useless. And I'm going, what's the perception with general public? Well, you know, he's not great. I, I mean, you know, is he not? I don't I don't think he's great, but I'm just glad he's not Trump. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, because because I, I, I think I think he really has inherited a bad hand in that. But in saying that, you know, Trump got dealt a bad hand with covid and mm-hmm. all he had to have done was take it seriously and he'd still be the president. Right. True. So if Trump had actually just been like, let's let's get through this together, Trump would still be the president. I mean, he, he stupidly picked this divisive take on covid and divided America and unfortunately came out the wrong well, for him. I mean, he came out the wrong side of the divide, you know, because essentially suburban women were like, you're an asshole because they actually were worried about COVID. So, you know, now he's gone. Thank God. Uh, but I do think that, you know, if we had Trump now for what's going on now, he, it would be even worse, but you know, Biden ha- has had a bad hand. Afghanistan was a disaster. COVID came back, you know, he, he he appears to not have dealt with it great because it, it became about testing and not about vaccines. Mm-hmm. Short lived though, Omicron short lived. But anyway, either way, he just hasn't looked great. He's made a lot of mistakes. He made another one recently with the Russia, you know, making the if it's an incursion, small incursion, maybe no big deal. Uh, and, you know, he's just not that articulate these days. Right. So I don't think that he's in serious mental decline like these right wing sites say, but he doesn't do himself any favors. You know, he just hasn't been impressive. That's what I would say. He hasn't been impressive. And he's just been very unlucky because the whole world's dealing with inflation. But of course, they're, in America, they're blaming it on Biden. Uh, you know, it's all just the repercussions of a year and a half, you know, like essentially nearly two years of a full pandemic. Biden's inherited all those things. And, you know, he, a lot of it he has to take on the chin. He just hasn't done himself any favors to try to get ahead of it or really sort of seem like a, a strong leader. And I, I don't think he has it in him to seem like a strong leader. Like I do think, you know, a combination of his age, his natural temperament, uh, and his, you know, his speech impediment, actually, like all these things are sort of working against him to fit a narrative that his critics are spinning. Uh, and he just he, he's kind of given them too much to just keep sliding. in. of course, the narrative is bullshit. You know, he, he's just a typical politician that's kind of like rolling with the, the things that are thrown at him. But I would say generally I've been disappointed. And he's also been unlucky because Joe Manchin and whatever, Kirsten Cinema have just like, you know, messed up every bit of and I'm hoping that they don't mess up this this new Supreme Court pick on top of it. Uh, so, you know, America's very divided, unfortunately, and he hasn't been a great sort of leader for rallying one side and you know, it, whatever. They, they, all that is very depressing uh, and it, 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 it bears not thinking about. The only hope is that if, the, if we don't end up in World War Three because of Russia, when the world reorganizes itself after covid, that, that things will settle down a bit because, you know, right now with the, infl- you know, there's just so much post COVID stuff. That's just bad. Uh, it, that's hard to navigate. Uh, I, I feel that I don't know if Trump's going to come back. Cause I, I, I don't know if, I don't know if the establishment really want Trump back. And I, I think when push comes to shove, there may be some enough energy uh, of people that just don't want to go back to that madness that Trump won't come back. If he does come back, th- th- that'll be the end of America though, because the, he will embolden these lunatics on the hard right so much that, you know, you literally could have like a handmaid's tale situation, but you know, don't quote me on that. <laughs> I know when you're looking at a room then like you are you sussing the room or do you just do what you do? You know what I mean? So, you know, we say America's divided. It's 50, 50 an audience, maybe a New York audience might not be, but there's still going to be a certain you know, different sides, both of the audience. Uh, you, you know, I, I, don't, I don't get into it. I don't get into it. And, and you know, there's a vaccine mandate, so yeah. <laughs> it actually gets rid of most of them. So yeah. I, I haven't had to deal with that that much, to be honest. <laughs> Good point. So thanks a million for giving me so much time. There's one last question. Maybe you've already answered it, but I'll ask it anyway, because I ask everyone to close your eyes and take four deep breaths. Where is your happy place and why? Do I have to actually do that now? Yeah. Oh, you have to take four deep breaths? Well, no, not really. But, you know, you can just close your eyes. My happy one. place? Honestly, yeah. I, 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 I probably go back to either that place in Brazil or to sitting on the beach in West Hampton or the meditation room in the Jogshan Barrett. Those are places I always think about when I'm trying to go to my, like, calm, happy place. 
but I'm Thanks. always on my own, which is interesting, but we'll get into that in another session. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's what I, actually, as an aside, I always joke, like I traveled for a couple of years with my wife and it was always like my happy place was always like sunsets, but it was always like, I go, you know, I'm just heading out for a little walk and I'd always come back going, that was the best sunset I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah I, I have similar, especially in the mornings because Hannah sleeps in, you know, so it's always like I have these amazing experiences in the morning and then, I wait for fucking Hannah to get up. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks a million. And I really look forward to seeing you in March. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks. Nice chat to you. I'll see you then. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Des is touring all over Ireland over the next few months, including Clamel on the 10th of March. And you can find all ticket details on desbishop.net. I would ask if you could please subscribe to Apple Podcast so a new episode will appear in your library every week. I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review as it helps others to discover this podcast. To find out who's on every Tuesday, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Travel Tales with Fergo. Stay safe and keep dreaming of future travels. Travel Tales with Fergo.